So this morning, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Mike, if you could follow along with the slides. My phone's not working this morning for some reason. Let's start here this morning. We talk about this a lot at our church on Sunday mornings, but every age, every generation of human society is defined by unique attitudes, unique interpretations, unique beliefs, unique behaviors. And so as you travel through human history and as you travel through human societies, you'll see that there are very specific groupings of human society that are defined by the things they believe and the behavior that their belief produces. Now, a simple way of describing this is wisdom. We walk through the world, human societies walk through the world with wisdom. Certain ways of interpreting things, certain philosophies, certain ideas, certain behaviors, certain beliefs, certain motivations, certain actions. And all of these behaviors, all of these beliefs compile up into ways of wisdom, ways of doing things. So let me give to you an example from here in the United States, in the Western United States anyway. Through the past hundred years or so, sociologists and demographers have labeled the various ages or the generations that have gone before us. For example... Walter Cronkite called the generation that was born between 1920 and 1945 the greatest generation. They were called the greatest generation because essentially Cronkite said that they fought for what was right, not for selfish gain. They were hardworking. They were some of the highest levels of producers. And the greatest generation had this strict moral code by which they lived, and all of culture was saturated with it. It was a way of believing, a way of behaving. There was wisdom in what they did, a certain type of wisdom. Now, the greatest generation gave birth to the baby-booming generation. And the baby boomers, well, they were born into relative prosperity and a level of peace until Vietnam. The baby boomers, they were marked for really the beginning of what we've come to know as the moral revolution. Drop LSD, drop out, burn the bra, stick it to the man, Woodstock, disco, bell bottoms, butterfly collars. I don't know how wise it was, but this is what the baby boomers were marked for. Now, the baby boomers gave birth to Generation X. That's my generation. We were known for general kind of social angst, we were the Solomon and Ecclesiastes of all the generations, of all the ages. We said, what's the point of all of this? It was my generation that gave rise to hair bands like Poison and White Snake and Motley Crue. And also it was my generation that gave rise to the grunge bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam. My generation was known for the invention of the internet, a way of doing things a certain cultural way of believing things, certain behaviors, certain byproducts that, that my generation produced. Now, Gen X has given way to the millennials. And as far as I can tell, the millennials are primarily marked by what I consider like a general social snobbery. You have to fit into a specific category of person, and if you don't fit into that specific category of person, then you're, you're snubbed and seen as not cool enough. You're not wearing the right glasses. Your skinny jeans aren't tight enough. Your, waxed, your, your mustache isn't waxed perfectly. You drink the wrong type of craft beer. This is what the millennial generation is known for, but as I've watched these kids growing up, they're also 
known for a desperate desire for tolerance. In all of their social snobbery, in all of their coolness, the millennial generation also desires this utopia that we all long for where everybody gets along, where nobody's told that they're wrong. Now, of course, that's a deformity of society, but that's what that generation is marked for. These defining sets of beliefs and behaviors, each generation, each age, going not only back to the great generation of the 20s and the 40s, but going all the way back to the days of Jesus, going all the way back to the days of Moses, going all the way back to the days of Adam and Eve, each successive generation of humanity, each age is marked by varying and differing beliefs and interpretations and ideas that produce different behaviors. Each age is marked by specific wisdom within which it walks. Now, some of you may be saying, great, that's super interesting. What does it have to do with Jesus, 1 Corinthians, my life, and going to work Monday morning? How is this going to help me? I'm super glad you asked. That's the point of our sermon this morning. <laughs> Interspersed through every age of human society has been these pocket societies of what the Bible calls a new humanity. Interspersed through every age of human existence have been a particularly called and chosen people who were brought out by the maker of the universe, saved and redeemed and sent back into these various ages, these generations, sent into these various places of belief and behavior, and they were sent in as a new society of new humanity who would walk according to a wisdom that was not of the world, but a wisdom that was of God. Jesus, when he came, inaugurated this new age, this kingdom age, and his followers, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, the church, now indwell each successive age of humanity, whether it's the greatest generation with their strict moral codes, or the baby boomers with their bell bottoms and butterfly collars, or Gen X with their flannels and grunge rock, or the millennials with their waxed mustaches and craft beer, interspersed, spotted like leaven in the loaf in each of these ages, are communities of people called the church who live by a wisdom that is not of the world, whose beliefs and behaviors cause their differences to be manifest in that culture. And that's exactly what Paul is doing with the city of Corinth here. Paul has planted this community of people called the church in the city of Corinth, and they have, instead of living by the wisdom that God has called them to live by, are living according to the world's wisdom still. That's what the whole book of 1 Corinthians is about. Rather than, rather than them living according to God's wisdom, rather than them adopting God's ways, they're living according to the wisdom of the age. And so Paul has to write the book of 1 Corinthians to them to correct them, to call them back to, here's what your belief should produce. Here's how you're going to be different from those generations that have gone before you, from the generation in which you live. Here's how you're going to leave a legacy for those who come after you as we are a colony of heaven. As we are a kingdom culture. This is what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at first the wisdom of the ages. 
Then we're going to look at how this wisdom is revealed from the passage, and we'll close this morning with how this wisdom renews us. Let's begin here in verse 6. The wisdom of the ages. Paul says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Paul here highlights for the Corinthian church two points of wisdom. The wisdom of the rulers of this age and the wisdom of the age to come. He says that for those who are mature, he is indeed revealing a way of living that is not in accord with the world. Now, we remember last week that Paul made it his point to preach Christ and Christ crucified, this foolish message that the Savior of the world wouldn't come with heroic tactics and displays of power, but he would come weakly. He would be crucified at the hands of the Roman Empire. He would be shamed. He would be abandoned. And this would be the way that God would save the world. And Jews would look on and say, give me a sign. I want to see more. Part the Red Sea. Multiply the loaves. Or I won't believe. Greeks would look on and they would say, this message doesn't make any sense. How could a Jewish peasant carpenter in the middle of nowhere, crucified by the Roman Empire, have anything to do with my eternal life? It doesn't make any sense. But Paul also pointed out that for those who believe this simple message that Jesus was crucified for your sins, this foolish message that Jesus died for you, it's the power of salvation, the wisdom of salvation, the righteousness of God, and the very sanctification, the very means by which God sets us apart. Now, lest the Corinthian church think that Paul was just continually giving these foolish platitudes, he says there is a wisdom for God's people, but it's for the mature. There's a hidden wisdom. There's a way of living that God's people, as they mature, adopt as their own. So we've got to ask the question, who are the mature? First of all, understand that if you are an immature Christian, You're not going to know it. How many of you can go to your five-year-old or your teenager who thinks that they're so mature, who thinks that they know exactly what to do, who thinks that they know the way that the world should be, and say to them, you're acting immature, and have them say, oh, you're right. (laughs) How many of you have ever been able to reason with your toddler? You are acting so immature, and they just stand up at attention. I'm having an epiphany right now. You're right. I'm acting very immature. No. If you're immature, you don't know that you're immature. The Corinthian church didn't know that they were acting like two-year-olds. And so Paul, the wise, sage, counselor, and paternal figure, comes to this little church, and he has to get down on his knees, get down on their eye level, and he has to say to them, for the mature... For those of us who have been growing in the Lord, for those of us who have been humbled, for those of us who have suffered, there's a way of living in this world that you're not living by. You're living by wisdom from the world, 
and you need to trust me as a wise, sage, paternal figure that loves you, who has maturity, that wants to guide you. I'm seeking to correct you for your ultimate good. What Paul is not doing here when he says for the mature there's a secret hidden wisdom is he's not saying there's two types of Christians. The normal Christian who just doesn't get it and then the super Christian who gets everything and has super spiritual insight. I would argue and I think Paul would argue as well that the man who stands up and says look how wise I am as a Christian. I have secret knowledge. I have more knowledge than you is actually the immature man. Why? Maturity in Christianity, and as this community right here matures in the gospel, it is marked by humility, dependence on God, a self-awareness that indeed I am fallible and broken and sinful, but also a fullness of faith that I am loved and accepted and cared for. You see, if you're plagued by constant guilt and shame, it's because you're not maturing yet in the gospel. If you're plagued by a continual sense of insecurity and anxiety, it's because God is maturing you to that place of believing what you believe in your heart, that God is sovereign, that he works all things for good. He's bringing you to a place of mature dependence, mature surrender, mature weakness, mature security in your own insecurity. And so Paul says through the cross, Corinthian church, Taproot church, churches of the south end, there is this way of living, this hidden secret wisdom. But then he makes very clear to the Corinthian church, it's not the wisdom of this world, the rulers of this world, the rulers of this age. This is not the wisdom. This is not the way that the mature Christian community lives in society. Why? Paul says that wisdom the wisdom of this age that we currently dwell in, whether it's bell bottoms and butterfly collars or waxed mustaches and craft beer, is doomed to pass away. <laughs> I see pictures, I was born in 1976, of my dad and my mom in the 70s. And I'm busting, as a little two-year-old, some massive bell bottom pants and butterfly collars. My mom and dad had like the most horrendous orange shag carpet in their house with turquoise blue furniture everywhere. And I look at these pictures and I think to myself, that's ridiculous. What were they thinking? The wisdom of the age was doomed to pass away. <laughs> we need to understand, because we, we commit what, what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. We think that where we are right now in time and space, we know everything there is to know, and we're doing things the way they should be done because we're right, because now is our time and it's the present moment. We need to be humble enough to realize that my son and my grandson are going to look at pictures, they're going to read books, they're going to listen to sermons that I preached, and my son is going to go, did you really believe that way? There are things that we believe right now, wisdom that we've adopted, ways of interpreting things, actions that we're taking, beliefs that we actually hold near and dear and non-negotiable, where our grandkids are going to look back at us and say, that is crazy that you guys believe that. That is so nuts. The wisdom of the ages in men is doomed to pass away. And so Paul says, for the maturing Christian, you're abandoning the wisdom of this world and its ways. You're slowly having your fingers untangled from it. 
And you've been granted a wisdom note that Paul says, which is from God, before the ages were even decreed, and it ends in our glory. God has given to the church a wisdom that spans from before the first suns were flung out into the solar system in the galaxy. From the beginning of time to the end of time, God has granted his particularly chosen community of people, this generation, this age of people, to live by a wisdom that ends in our glory. Because it spans all of time. It spans all of space. And Paul says that this wisdom of this new inaugurated age that Jesus has ushered in with his life and his death and his resurrection. Well, note he quotes loosely here, Isaiah 64. No eye has seen this. No ear can hear this. Why? Why is God's wisdom so secret? Why is it hidden? A couple reasons. Number one, God's way of working in the world is hidden from the world and sometimes from us because it's so backwards. It's so backwards. God's wisdom says that weakness is the way to strength. God's weakness says that, or God's wisdom says that the way to go up, to actually gain, to get rewarded, to be who you truly are, is to lose yourself. And so it's hidden to us because everything in us says, that doesn't make any sense. That's so strange. God's wisdom and I've been saying this often on Sunday mornings, says that the kid with Down syndrome who's serving chili over here at Transform Burian this afternoon is as glorious as Billy Graham. You see, it's hidden. It's secret. It's unseen. God's wisdom says, Mama, at 2 o'clock in the morning when you're changing that diaper and praying over that three-month-old, the kingdom is there. It's hidden. It's unseen. Our ears can't even hear this because we swim in this cultural aquarium where there's this, there's this cacophony. There's this, there is this concert of noise that says you must climb, you must be seen, you must be famous, you must be powerful, you must be rich. And then there's God's secret hidden wisdom in the maturing communities of faith interspersed in this society saying, I honor the kid with Down syndrome who's serving chili and the mama who's changing a diaper at two in the morning because God's wisdom says the kingdom is there. Number two, though, why is this wisdom hidden? It's so good. It is good beyond our reckoning. We cannot comprehend how beautiful and how glorious the kingdom come will be. So we go on our walk last night Family walk, kids are riding their bikes. Lord pulled off a beautiful sunset over the mountain landscapes last night as we were on our walk. And we were heading back, and my wife says to my son, Look up in the sky and, and see how beautiful it is. And my son, who's immature, says, Oh, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> and totally ignores how beautiful it is. And my wife says, No, I want you to look at it and explain it to me. And Joby looks up and he says, Yeah, it's purple and it's it's pink and it's beautiful and it's it's the color of love. And as he said that, as he said that, I thought to myself, that's a mark of maturity because one day we will view the Son, the resurrected Son, Jesus Christ, and his beauties and his glory. We will stand and we will say, this is the image of love. And his grace to you, as we'll talk about next week, your future, your future, I know it's bad right now. 
that your future is so good. It is so secure. It is so holy. So no eye can see, no ear can hear. And finally, it's eternal. This wisdom that God has given to us is hard to hear. It's hard to see. It's what he's prepared for us, but it is eternal. Number two this morning, how is this wisdom revealed to us? How is this wisdom revealed to us? Read with me there in verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Only God himself can reveal himself to us. And so Paul makes clear that we can't comprehend the wisdom of God by reading books, going to seminars, studying and contemplating in our own power and strength and wisdom. Paul says there's a supernatural revelation that occurs for God's people as God is maturing them, wherein the Holy Spirit who indwells us reveals these things that can't be seen, opens our ears so that we can hear these things that cannot be heard. Every age, going clear back to Adam, has tried to discern who God is and define who God is on their own terms. This was the original sin of Adam, the first generation, the first age of human existence. Satan came and he said to Adam and Eve, did God really say? And they obeyed Satan's deception and their own desires above God's will. And in so doing, they said, we will define God as we want God to be. Though God has said, we won't. Though God wants us to trust, we'll trust in ourselves. And every successive age and generation of human society from that point on has sought to define God and say who God is on their own terms. But God must be the one who comes and defines himself. Notice here in verses 10b through 11, Paul says, the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, verse 11, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What Paul is saying here is, for somebody to make themselves known, if you have deep inner thoughts towards somebody, only you can reveal those thoughts. And what Paul is saying, using a human analogy, is only God can reveal his thoughts, his will, his desires by his Holy Spirit to us. When we seek to self-define God, which we're all given over to because of sin, we make a God in our own image. But for those who are maturing, we come to the Lord, we surrender to the Lord, and the Lord fills us with his Holy Spirit, and he begins to essentially think his thoughts in us. Notice what Paul says there in verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world. We're no longer basing our values, our identity on what the world says is valuable and worthwhile. No, instead, we have received not but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. In verse 13, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Paul essentially is saying that this wisdom comes supernaturally by the revelation of Jesus himself. Now, a couple things here before we move on to our final point and wrap up. First of all, because you're a Christian, because Christ was crucified for you, 
God actually wants to speak to you. God the Holy Spirit actually wants to speak to you. Like God does not want us living alone. God does not want us living abandoned. God actually desires to speak to us by the Spirit. And so we have to ask the question, how can we know that God is revealing his wisdom to us? How can we know that we're maturing? How can we know that God's Spirit is at work in us? A couple things here that I've listed for us and we'll move on. Number one, God's Spirit communicates through his scriptures. I think I say this almost everything, every single Sunday at Taproot Church. I hope you all have a real Bible, a real Bible with leather and pages in it that you can smell and put on your lap and hit your kid with, whatever you need to do with this thing. I hope you have one because it's through this you can know that you are listening to the Holy Spirit when this is open on your lap and you're reading the words and you're praying and you're asking God, God, I need you to communicate with me. God, I need you to guide me. There is an entrenched immaturity in the Western church because you are not reading your Bible. And right now I am being Pastor Daddy coming to you saying, you've got to read your Bible. This should be open on your lap daily. Morning by morning, so that this hidden wisdom, this grace from God, this communication that shapes you and guides you and takes you out of the wisdom of the world and puts you into these wise ways that are eternal and for your glory, this should be open on our laps every morning. This should be the place where first we know that the Spirit is guiding us. Number two, we know that the Holy Spirit is revealing wisdom to us because he convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Usually as American Christians, we think to ourselves, when the Holy Spirit's speaking to me, it's going to feel like I'm floating up in heaven, and there's going to be an angelic chorus behind me, and I'm going to feel warm and fuzzy in my tummy, and this is when I know God the Holy Spirit is really talking to me. Maybe, could be a demon too. (laughs) Listen, when the scriptures are open and God the Holy Spirit begins to commune with you, one of the first things that happens to us is we come under the conviction of who we are. That sense of, oh man, I don't feel clean right now. That's the Holy Spirit gently whispering to you. Oh man, I think right now God is showing me even through this sermon that these certain ways in the world that I've been basing my value on, man, I've been doing that. I want to turn from that. That is God the Holy Spirit beginning to move in you. When you have a sense of wrong, when you have a sense of of diminishment, when you have a sense of, I haven't done this right, or you have a sense of shame, don't run from that. Embrace that. That is God the Holy Spirit, because God the Holy Spirit doesn't come with condemnation. It's not an angry, you've done this, you've done that. That's satanic. But when he comes and he gently yields up in your consciousness the reality that I've failed, I've been false, I've lied, I've manipulated, I've based my identity on this world and not on the world to come, all of these things, when he begins to do that, don't run from that. Embrace that as the beginning of the communication from God, the Holy Spirit, because number three, when he does that, he comforts through grace in the midst of the gospel. It is only the gospel applied by the Holy Spirit that transforms us and literally comforts us in the midst of our hurt and wrong and shame. And so when God the Holy Spirit is maturing you or communicating to you or revealing this this wisdom of the ages, 
You're in the scriptures. You come under this sense of sin. And then you turn to the cross. And the Holy Spirit applies the life of Jesus and the blood of Jesus to your shame and your guilt. And the resurrection of Jesus to your failings. And washes you completely clean. You can mark the words of the Spirit in that process. Moving from a sense of shame and guilt to a sense of I am infinitely accepted. I am forever loved. I will never be abandoned. Now for some in this room, if you're truly maturing as a Christian, you will go through long extended seasons where it seems like God is totally silent. All God is doing there is he is drawing the depth of your faith away from experience to him himself. Those who go through long, dark seasons, dark nights of the soul, as the ancients would call them, that is the process where God is maturing you. God is actually still speaking to you in the silence. God is still speaking to you in the midst of the quiet. He's calling you to mature as a believer, saying, though I don't hear clearly, though my heart is not comforted perfectly, though I feel the weight of my guilt, my trust is not in my experience or my subjective senses. It is in Christ crucified the wisdom of the ages and in my own experience now almost 20 years with Jesus I can tell you that these dark nights of the soul can get super gnarly to the point where you feel like oh my gosh I'm pastoring a church and I'm not even sure I'm a Christian where are you God and the pain is horrible but then when you come through that maturing phase that testing phase when the spirit does open up your heart again it's like fields of flowers and blue skies after months of Seattle rain. It's so beautiful. It's so glorious. It's so overwhelming. It's so hard to see and hard to hear. Number four, God the Holy Spirit will always clarify his voice through the scriptures and through community. We live in a culture of Christianity where we want to be autonomous. So we think that the Holy Spirit's going to speak to us like some voice in our heart when in fact, more often, 99% of the time, the Holy Spirit is going to speak to you in the midst of community. That's why we highlight Sunday gatherings here. We say, come gather with the church because the voice of the Holy Spirit will come through the scriptures by preachers and prophets who are appointed to this position in the church. That's why every Sunday I will say to you, your next step in growing as a Christian is to get involved in an HG. Because those nights when you're sitting around, having a meal with your friends, it's in those conversations where the Holy Spirit will clarify his purposes for you. He will correct you. He will comfort you through the voice of the church. HGs are not just a means for us to close the back door and make sure that you become part of Taproot Church. They are a primary means of the ways in which God matures us. And so if you're longing to hear the voice of the Spirit, you should step back and consider, are you by yourself as a Christian? If you're by yourself as a Christian, then you are indeed deaf. Your ears will not be opened. But if as a Christian you're saying, I long for maturity, which by the way is a work of the Spirit, then your next step is to get involved in volunteering and serving and surrounding yourself in a community with your HG, opening up your ears to hear Him. And then finally, we know that we are listening to the Holy Spirit when the conclusion of our hearts or our communication with him is, Jesus be glorified. If what we are led to do, if the way we are led to respond, if the way that we believe and behave 
in the midst of all this worldly wisdom, leads us to say, whatever comes to pass, Jesus be glorified. Jesus be made much of. I trust him. I obey him. I respond to him for his glory, no matter what happens to me. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, a mature Christian community is a community that has laid everything down before God and said, no matter what happens to us, no matter what society around us says, we do what we do, we stand our ground with humility and dependence and weakness and, and insecurity, but we stand our ground on the scriptures so that Jesus will be glorified. And we are that interspersed pocket of new humanity right here in this city where the wisdom of the ages has lost its frigging mind. The society around us has lost its mind. But as we close this morning, We've been given the mind of Christ. This is one of the most glorious passages, actually, in the entire book of 1 Corinthians as we go to point number three and wrap things up. The way that this wisdom renews. Paul says, he highlights here two people. The natural person, he says in verse 14, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Paul here says to the Corinthian church that there's two categories of people, which we've talked about all through this sermon and all through this series and all through our time in the Bible. There's the natural person. This is the Greek word pasuke, from which we get the word soul. And then there's the spiritual person. This is the Greek word pneumatikos. Pneuma. Pneumatic tools. There's the spirit activation in that person. And so Paul says for the natural person, the person who's been brought from the dirt, created by God, and is merely a soul, but is not regenerated, is not indwelt by God himself, all this stuff is utter foolishness. And the mind of that person is being increasingly entangled in the contradicting foolishness of the world. We see this in extreme form in our society right now. Where one of the primary debates, and my head is still spinning that this is actually the reality that we live in. One of the primary debates is... Can somebody who is biologically born as a male be given legal rights to go into my 13-year-old daughter's locker room because the biological male has self-defined as a gender female? I want to say this with humility and respect, but I do say it in earnest frustration. That is insanity. That's insanity. And we need to understand that the natural man in this room right now, you're taking deep offense to what I'm saying. You're, you're, you're sitting in your seat saying, see, this is the problem with Christianity. You make these moral absolutes and you say that these things are absolutely true. And we do, but not based on our statements based on the statements of Scripture through the Spirit, based on the Savior, Jesus Christ, and what He has called us to. And so the man who is natural will only continue to have their mind more and more entangled in these moral contradictions, in these 
foolish things. And ultimately, remember, Paul says, this too shall pass away. This too shall disappear. This too shall be doomed. But then there is the pneumaticos. There's the spiritual person who steps back. And notice what Paul says. He says, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. What Paul is saying there to the Corinthian church and what he's saying to us is, those of us who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit are increasing in humility, increasing in love, increasing in wisdom. And when the world looks on and says, you're a bigot, you're homophobic, you don't get it, you're intolerant, we stand before the judge Jesus and say, I'm just going to entrust myself to you. We go with our king who was considered worthless, devalued, and the rulers of that age did what to him? They crucified him. And so a maturing community of faith in this age is willing to say, Lord, I lay down my life as you did, and they can judge me as they will, but I know that ultimately my judgment comes from you. And if they crucify me, if they marginalize me, if they fire me, if I don't get the promotion, if I'm not accepted for the students in this room with my circle of friends and my peers, I'm not living by the wisdom of this age. God has given me a wisdom that ends in my glory, though in this world it will be very difficult. And then Paul makes this crazy statement as he quotes from Isaiah 40. Who has understood the mind of the Lord so as, in, so as to instruct him? And in the, in the context of Isaiah there, the rhetorical question is asked and the obvious answer is nobody understands the Lord. But then Paul says this to you and I, we do. We have the mind of Christ. It's audacious. It's outlandish, but you, this little company, this tiny little community of fools and broken people, we now, by the Holy Spirit, as God matures us, think the thoughts of Jesus. We now increasingly believe the beliefs of Jesus and behave in ever-increasing measure as we mature like Jesus. So here's how Paul put it as we close this morning in Romans chapter 12. The way that our minds are renewed with this wisdom. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let me read this to you from the New Living Translation because I think the appeal comes perfectly. And as I read this to you guys, one of the prayers that I'm praying for us as a church is that we would be a maturing Christian community marked by humility and dependence and the ages of God's wisdom. But our response to that is that we lay down our lives. Beloved church, in the generation that we live in, we are being called to lay down our lives and we have opportunity to suffer as our brothers and sisters have suffered through the histories of human society in a new and a fresh way for the glory of Jesus. Respond to that because of all that he's done for you. His grace and his mercy never leaves you. 
what he has prepared for you. Your eye can't see, your ear can't hear. You can't even imagine what you're going towards. Let that be the motivating factor in your heart and soul where you say to Paul, as he says to you, so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. We have the mind of Christ because Christ was crucified for us. We have the very spirit of Christ because Christ died for us and sent his spirit to dwell with us and be in us. And so continually, Sunday after Sunday, we come to the communion table where we confess to the Lord, Lord, I've been living by the wisdom of this world. And in so doing, I crucified you. This morning as we come to the communion table, some have been graciously spoken to by the Holy Spirit, squirming in your seat. My goodness, I think he's talking directly to me about this particular sin issue that I've been dealing with. That's not me, that's the Spirit. Some this morning need to come to the communion table and mature in embracing the grace of the gospel. In fact, I would wager to guess because I know myself in my immaturity, that most of us need to come to the communion table this morning and simply say, Lord, I believe that you love me. I believe you love me fully and completely. I believe you'll never leave me. I believe that I am accepted on the basis of your life and that you value me and I am infinitely worthy to you and that I am beautiful to you. And not just say that cerebrally. Don't just repeat that in your head, but pray, Holy Spirit, take the comforts of the gospel and drop them deep down into my heart. What happens here in our time of communion is this little pocket of new humanity, this colony of the kingdom, as backwards, as small, as inconsequential as we are in the big world of the Seattle Metroplex. What happens in this space is the veil between heaven and earth, thins. And the wisdom of the ages, God's wisdom, breaks in a little more fully, a little more clearly, a little more freshly in our hearts. And we respond to it by receiving it, walking in its truth, and then taking it forth like salt, like leaven in the loaf, into the age of the world in which we live, until the king comes. And some of us will have the worthy calling of dying for him. Doing for him what he did for us. And we will enter into glory. Alex, you can come on up. I'm going to pray for us. Father, we thank you this morning for your wisdom. We thank you that it's not a wisdom of this world. We thank you that this wisdom is revealed by the Holy Spirit. Father, as we prepare to take communion this morning as a church, I'm praying that three things would happen. First, I pray now that you would convict us. God, that we would sit and feel and sense personally and corporately where we have walked in the ways of the world. 
And like the Corinthian church, we would hear our pastor Paul in his writing to us saying, for the mature, there's a hidden wisdom. There's wisdom that is beyond this age. There is wisdom that is not doomed to pass away and that we would long for it, God. I pray that our church, the churches here in the South End, would long for a wisdom that is not of this world, but a wisdom from God himself. And it's manifested in Christ and his crucifixion. Second, I pray this morning for the comfort of the Holy Spirit in this room. Every single person in the overflow room, in this space, as we partake of communion today, I pray that you would mature these believers where you would take them to a place where they literally experience and say in their heart of hearts, I am loved. Lord, that they would experience and sense in their hearts by the Holy Spirit, I am valued. I am significant in the eyes of the King. I am beautiful because of Jesus. I am at peace I'm settled. My God is in control. I pray that we would mature past our strivings and our labors and our manipulations. And that today in this space, as heaven and earth meet together here in this room, through the act of communion, through the worship of the saints, that the saints would mature and stand fast in the grace of the gospel. And finally, Father, I pray that as through the history of humanity, you have sent societies of new humanity into the various generations that in this age God this generation of the church would see revival I'm pleading with you God for converts I'm literally begging you to break in upon our city and break in upon the homes in this city break in upon the workplaces with your gentleness and your holiness and tenderness. And I'm praying, Lord, for the saints of God as they go out maturing in this hidden wisdom, unseen and unheard, that as the natural man looks and listens to these souls out in the world, you would draw them, Holy Spirit, to salvation, that you would convert and make Christians, sons and daughters of the King. Thank you that there are many in the South End who have yet to come to be reached by these. And so this morning, Father, as we partake of communion together, may there be that sense of the King on his throne and your sovereignty and your grace. And may you, Lord, be the God immovable, unchanging, steadfastly at work in us. And finally, Father, I pray that where we've been holding on to our own identity and not losing our life for your glory, where we've been fighting against your will or your purposes and, and demanding of you that you do it our way, that today at the cross we would see Jesus who gave up everything so he could have us, that we would be able to trust him perfectly. Lord, we sing for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.